During this time between Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, we are reading the prophets. We are reading in our immersed Bibles the writings of the 12 prophets. And all that they declared as they anticipated the coming of the Messiah and the fulfillment of God's work. One of the things that we have noted is that Jesus said that everything that was written by the prophets needed to be fulfilled by him. And so we are reading the prophets to see what they are saying about Jesus as we look towards Holy Week, as we look towards Good Friday, and remember the crucifixion of Jesus, and then his resurrection. We have been reading over the last couple of weeks in Isaiah, which is the longest of all of the prophets. We are right now midway through the second half of Isaiah's prophecy, and then on Wednesday, we are going to continue reading through other prophets. This morning, we are going to look in the Word at this second half of Isaiah's prophecy and look at this subject, this theme, this emphasis, the singular Redeemer. Keep those two words in your mind as we look at the Scriptures, singular Redeemer. For we are going to hear God speaking and proclaiming that he alone is the Redeemer. He alone is the Savior, and there is no one outside of him. Let's look at a little background for a moment and understand something. The opening pages of Scripture to the final chapter. Humanity's need for a Savior is made clear. Equally clear is the truth that God himself is the only sufficient source of salvation for an incorrigibly and irreparably sinful humanity. Let's read that again, and if you are sitting there in your home and you're looking at this, read it out loud with me. From the opening pages of Scripture to the final chapter, humanity's need for a Savior is made clear. Equally clear is the truth that God himself is the only sufficient source of salvation for an incorrigibly and irreparably sinful humanity. I told you last week that because of its content and because of its emphasis on Jesus and his work, that Isaiah has sometimes been called the gospel of Isaiah, the fifth gospel. In the first 39 chapters, God documented the incorrigible sinfulness and the inevitable judgment of every nation and people group. One nation after another, one group of people after another. God noted specific sins. God spoke of the necessary and inevitable judgment that was going to come every upon every group of people collectively. The most egregious offenders were those who claimed to know and serve him, his own people. To those he said, oh, what a sinful nation they are. 
loaded down with a burden of guilt. They are an evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why must you continue to invite punishment? Must you rebel forever? Your head is injured and your heart is sick. Now, once again, God did not say those words about a group of idol worshipers, but about his own people. Jesus quoted the words of Isaiah concerning the people of his day, the people who claimed to be true followers of God. And he said, they worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In other words, God was simply an add-on to all of the other ambitions and priorities in their lives. He wasn't first and foremost. And although they claimed to be following him, yet when he looked past their words, past the exterior, into the interior of their hearts, he found that their hearts were divided. They did not serve him. They did not love him. They did not honor him with all of their hearts. God warned his people, and then he extended to them a gracious invitation. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. In that very same context, God spoke to their worship, and I'm afraid that the words of God spoken all those years ago would characterize much of our worship today. Because our hearts are not for him and for him alone. He finds our worship to be noisy, burdensome, unconsecrated, unholy, unacceptable. I don't need this, he said. I don't want anything to do with it. And then God spoke these words. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. If you will only obey me, you will have plenty to eat. But if you turn away and refuse to listen, you will be devoured by the sword of your enemies. In my tool bag, I have a number of containers of chalk for different colored chalk lines for snapping a straight line, having a visible mark. One of those colors is red. For years, a red chalk container had these words on the label, there is no known way to remove this mark. And God spoke to his people concerning their sins. And he said, there's no known way for you to remove them. You cannot get rid of your sins. But if you will turn to me, I will make them as white as snow. But if you refuse to listen to me, you will be consumed by the consequences of your sin. 
In the second half of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, there is a change of tone and a change of emphasis. The first 39 chapters have been on the sin of God's people. God has been good to his people. We have within those chapters quite a noteworthy historical event. Under the leadership of Hezekiah, who was a good king, who returned the people to the Lord, who saw a national revival and a rededication of the temple, the worship, and the people to the Lord. They experienced the Assyrians coming against them. The Assyrians were the contemporary empire that was ruling the known world of Isaiah's day, Hezekiah's time. The Assyrian army came and surrounded Jerusalem, and the situation was hopeless. And Hezekiah went before the Lord, and he laid on the altar the letter that the Assyrian commander had sent, demanding the surrender of Jerusalem and declaring that no one's gods had been able to keep them, that the God of the Assyrians was greater. And Hezekiah pleaded with the Lord to intervene. Isaiah came to him with a message declaring that the Lord would show himself mighty. We have a trilogy of Psalms, Psalm 46, 47, and 48, that were written to commemorate what God did for his people and the great victory. When they awoke the next day, the entire Assyrian army had been slain by the angel of the Lord. The king of Assyria ran back to his capital and went into his temple to worship his God. And there his own sons killed him as he was worshiping that idol. And then came time that Hezekiah's life was ending and God sent another message to Isaiah and said to him, set your house in order for the time has come for you to die. Hezekiah did not want to die. And he pleaded with the Lord to give him an increased lifetime. And so God said that he would. And God even graciously gave Hezekiah a sign. He caused the sun to go backward. And for the shadow to be obvious on the sundial. But during those years, Hezekiah's heart became proud. When envoys from the Babylonians, the next aspiring kingdom, came to visit Jerusalem, Hezekiah took them into the temple and he showed them the storehouses and the treasure houses and all the things. And because he had done so in pride, God sent another message through Isaiah, declaring that the temple would be plundered and that all of those treasures would be carried away by the Babylonians. Hezekiah's reaction, it was not one of humbling himself before the Lord. He said this. He spoke to Isaiah and said, the word of the Lord is good. But in his heart, he was saying, at least it won't happen in my lifetime. Such is the incorrigible nature of our sinfulness. Despite all that God had done for him, 
He was proud. Dismissed the reprimand of the Lord and did not humbly seek God's forgiveness. Another tragic note is that during his extended lifetime, his son Manasseh was born. And his son Manasseh would turn away from the Lord. And in the most egregious manner, would serve the gods and the idols of the surrounding nations, even sacrificing Hezekiah's grandsons, alive in the fire, to the idol god Molech. Once again, such is the irreparable nature of our sinfulness. No matter how much light we have, no matter how much truth we are exposed to, apart from God doing a divine work to transform us and bring us to himself, we remain deeply sinful. In chapter 40, the focus shifts from humanity's sinfulness and consequential judgment to God's provision of hope and salvation. The first 11 verses of Isaiah 40 are fascinating. For in just 11 verses, we are told of the prophetic ministry of John the baptizer, the glory of the Messiah King and his everlasting kingdom is revealed, and his ministry as the Savior Shepherd is envisioned. And this is 700 years before any New Testament event. By the end of Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 66, the nature of the Messiah's sacrificial service will be thoroughly detailed, and the glory of his kingdom and reign in the setting of the new heavens and earth will be described in a manner that perfectly reflects the New Testament from the first pages of the gospel to the last page of the Revelation. You can understand why. Isaiah is sometimes referred to as the gospel of Isaiah. Over the next few moments, we are going to look at what God says in the succeeding chapters. We're going to listen primarily to his words with minimal exposition on our part. And we're going to keep in mind the title that we have given to this study, that reflects this second portion of Isaiah, the singular Savior. In Isaiah 43, God speaks, You have been chosen to know me. Believe in me and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been and there never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord. And there is no other Savior. First, I predicted your rescue. Then I saved you and proclaimed it to the world. No foreign God has ever done this. You are witnesses that I am the only God. And indeed, the people of God had experienced God declaring their rescue, God saving them. No one else's God had been able to save them from the Assyrians. But the one and only true God 
demonstrated and verified that he was indeed the one and only Savior by rescuing them. You are witnesses that I am the only God, says the Lord. In Isaiah 44 and verse 6, this is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. We hear these words in the New Testament, don't we? As Jesus declares to John in the Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. In Isaiah 45, 21b to 25, For there is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. Let all the world look to me for salvation, for I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by my own name, I have spoken the truth, I will never go back on my word. Every knee will bend to me, and every tongue will declare allegiance to me. The people will declare, the Lord is the source of all my righteousness and strength. In the Lord, all the generations of Israel will be justified, and in him they will boast. We recognize several passages of Scripture from the New Testament here. We think of the words of Peter when he and John declared, there is no other name given and no one else who is the source of salvation except for Jesus Christ. We also recognize the Apostle Paul quoting these verses this chapter of Isaiah, in reference to Jesus, who became a slave to do God's will, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Philippians chapter 2. In Isaiah 46, we read these words. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted. You who are now far from my righteousness, I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. This is an amazing statement that God makes known, the end from the beginning. He is the omniscient God who knows everything. He is the God who has predetermined everything. To everything there is an appointed time. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law and its judgments. And through Jesus Christ, came our redemption. There is an appointed day, the day of the Lord, 
when human history will come to an end and all will give an account to God for the lives that they have lived. In the fullness of time came our salvation. I am bringing my righteousness near. In Isaiah 49, we read these words. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God has been my strength. He says, It is too small of a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation will, may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, throughout the chapters of Isaiah 40 to 66, we are presented with several servants of the Lord. One is Israel, because God had chosen Israel to serve his purposes and be a light of revelation to the world around them. We are also introduced to another servant, a man whose life and work does not yet exist. Cyrus, king of the Medes and the Persians. Right now, at this time, it is Assyria that is a dominant world power. They will be overtaken by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians will be overtaken by the Medes and the Persians. This is still hundreds of years into the future. And yet God speaks in these chapters of Cyrus, his servant, and though he does not acknowledge me, God said, I will use him to fulfill my purposes and bring my promises about. The third servant that God addresses is the Messiah. The Savior who will come. The Redeemer he will send. And God here declares that Jesus is formed in the womb to be his servant. And the work that he has been called to is a work for all the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Further in that chapter, God speaks. This is what the Lord says. The Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. As you and I get further and further here into these prophecies concerning the singular Savior, the focus narrows and becomes more specific, more descriptive of one who will come and be that Savior to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation. We see the rejection of Jesus he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He is a servant of rulers. We read in 
Romans chapter 15, that Jesus became a servant of the Jews on behalf of the promises made to the patriarchs. But ultimately, kings will see Christ and stand up, and princes will see him and bow down, and everyone will confess that he alone is the Lord. Note how the focus becomes more and more specific. In Isaiah chapter 50, we read these words. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. Jesus will say to his disciples, to the crowd around him, as he gets close to the end of his ministry, I only say what the Father tells me to say. Every word that I have spoken to you, he has spoken to me. He has told me what to say, and I have said his words. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. In Isaiah 51, listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. The law will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look to the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. In the first part of Isaiah 52, for this is what the Lord says, you were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Remember the words of Peter that we have looked at. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about. When they prophesied about this glorious salvation prepared for you, they wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. Nowhere are those words more true than at this moment where we are reading in Isaiah's prophecy. We come to Isaiah 53. In actuality, the last part of Isaiah 52 in our reference Bibles is part of chapter 53. It's one of the advantages to reading together in our immersed Bibles without the chapters and references that were added later on, we are able to see the flow of thought. 
This one who is the singular savior is presented as the suffering servant. God speaks of his servant, the one whom he is sending to serve his purposes, his purposes of bringing salvation to all the world. As we look at these passages, we think of what took place when Jesus came. They were looking for a conquering king. Instead, they received a carpenter. They were looking for a sovereign who would overthrow the Roman government. Instead, God sent a servant, a savior who would lay down his life. It's not what we are looking for and not what we want that counts. It's what God understands that we need. I want you to look at how the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ is described as we read through these verses. Words that were prophesied, words that were recorded 700 years before Jesus came and died on the cross. His face was so disfigured, he hardly seemed human. From his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Nothing noteworthy about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. He was despised and we did not care. He carried our weaknesses, our sorrows weighed him down. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, unjustly condemned, struck down for the rebellion of my people. He was buried like a criminal. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. His life is made an offering for sin. He exposed himself to death. He was counted among the transgressors. He bore the sins of many. He interceded for the transgressors. And then these words are recorded. And they are the heart and the soul of the work that Jesus did, of his sacrificial death. My righteous servant, God said, will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Again, this is the heart of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. This is what he came to do. He was a servant the word that is used there in the New Testament is the word doulos, which means slave. His life was not his own. It was given by God for our sins and to make atonement for our transgressions. Jesus made it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he would bear all their sins. 
We read these words in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. What we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. At the end of Isaiah chapter 53, we read these words. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10 tells us, For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. This brings to us the words of Isaiah 53 and the words that we have read from Hebrews chapter 2. It was God's will, God's will for us to be made holy, God's will for us to be counted righteous by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it was God's will for him to die in our place. It was God's will for his life to be an atonement for our sins. Did Jesus have to die the gruesome death that we find described in Isaiah and recorded, documented for us in the Gospels? Perhaps, perhaps not. He did have to die in order as our substitute to atone for our sins. But the reality is that it's the sinfulness of human nature that causes him to die for our sins. And it was the sinfulness, the depth of man's evilness and his ability to inflict that evil upon others that brought such a gruesome and terrible death for Jesus. You and I see the ugliness a sinful human nature in our city every day as one person guns down another across our nation, around the world. Jesus died for such sins. His death was the only sufficient payment to satisfy the judgment against us, against humanity, for their egregious sinfulness against God. In Romans chapter 3, we read these words. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without the attempts of our inept rule-keeping to gain merit, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned 
We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This is the fulfillment of the words that we read in Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. God so loved the world that he sent his son to suffer, to be crushed, to make his life an offering for sin. That was the Lord's will. And the will of God prospered in the hand of Jesus. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life, resurrection, and he will be satisfied. There are a couple of important statements that you and I want to recognize and remember in these verses. The first is this, my righteous servant. Jesus came in all of his sinless perfection, an infinite sinless righteousness. He came as a servant, a slave to do the will of God, not my will, but yours be done. And that will was for him to die so that there might be a payment for your sin and my sin. Thus, we read the words, he will bear their iniquities. The word iniquity means willful sin. We choose to sin, but the sacrifice of Jesus and the payment that he made covered all of our sins, both those unintentional and those that are deeply intentional. The result of his work, that we can be justified by putting our faith in him. Justification is an act of God. It has nothing to do with us, except that we believe in what Christ has done for us. It has everything to do with God. God declares us to be righteous in his sight, acquitted of guilt, on the basis of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. We are made holy. He credits our guilt to Jesus Christ, and he credits the righteousness of Christ to us. And he declares us to be justified, made righteous in his sight. This is the gospel. This is why Jesus came. These are the prophecies that he fulfilled as he became the only source of salvation, the singular Savior for whoever would believe in him. Jesus said to his disciples, 
after his resurrection. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The Apostle Peter would use those words, witnesses. As he spoke on the day of Pentecost, as he spoke on subsequent occasions, we are witnesses of the death of Jesus Christ. We are witnesses to the fact that we can only be right with God by putting our faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. My merit and your merit will never match the merit of God. Only Jesus Christ is truly righteous. And our trust and our faith must be in him. You and I are coming to the Lord's table today. And Jesus declares that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we declare his death. We are saying, if you had not given your life for me, there is no way that I could ever be right with God. We are declaring our faith and our trust in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And we are also declaring we are witnesses that he is the singular Savior and that he must be known by everyone so that everyone can put their trust in him. You and I have been called into, invited by him into this wonderful salvation. We could not earn it. We could not gain it. There is nothing that we could do on our own. He did it for us. We exchange our lives with all of its sinfulness, with his life, with all of its righteousness. And we also say, my life is not my own. And I live only for the purposes of God that others may know this great salvation through Jesus Christ. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you so love the world, that you sent your one and only Son to be the atoning sacrifice and to make the payment for our sins, a payment that could only be made by death. We put our faith in Jesus Christ with all of our hearts, we declare. We are justified only through Jesus Christ. We declare that we want no other life and no other future, but the life of Jesus Christ. We declare that our faith is in him alone, and we will live for him with all of our hearts, all of our days. Father, we thank you that we are marking 82 years for the life and the ministry of this church. We thank you for each person who is part of that testimony and part of that history. We thank you for one another. We pray 
for ourselves. We pray for each other. May we be true to the gospel of Jesus Christ and true to witness the work of Jesus Christ until he returns. May none of us love this world. May none of us fall away. But may we remain true to you and faithful to your calling. Trusting in the atoning work of Jesus Christ until we stand before you singing that song, salvation belongs to our God and unto the lamb who has purchased us with his blood. We thank you. We bless one another in the name of Jesus. And thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we have had to be together and to rejoice in your work and in your faithfulness in our lives. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.